Uh, if you would open up your pew Bible to page 1119, I am eventually going to get there. Well, have you ever changed your mind about someone? Let's say you, uh, you met someone initially and you were not impressed. You're kind of like, well, who is this person? Kind of turned off, you guarded, not thinking you're going to spend much time with it. Then something happens. And, and you have a change of heart towards that person. You've heard about this in some marriages, like the wife is like initially turned off by her to-be husband back in the early days, and then something dramatic happens, and all of a sudden, the wife changes her heart towards this young man, and they get married. Change of heart. Or maybe someone has changed their mind about you. You started out out of favor with someone, and for whatever reason, that person changed their mind about you. You went from being out of favor to being in favor with them. Last week, I, in last week's sermon, I, I made the case from Romans 1, 2, and 3 that all of us, all of us are unrighteous in God's sight. Whether we are unrighteous hedonists or unrighteous moralists, we're all without excuse before God. We can't excuse ourselves. And we are justly under His wrath because of that. In Romans 5.10, we read, we were enemies of God. Out of favor. Enemies. Let me ask you, what would it take for God to change His mind about an unrighteous sinner who is without excuse and under his wrath. What would it take for God to change his mind towards you and towards me? If we are all justly without excuse, if we are all justly under God's wrath, what would need to change the mind of a just God towards us? God would need to change us justly. And here we have the doctrine of justification. Last week I shared with you from Romans 1 that the gospel of Jesus Christ, this, this message from God to an unrighteous humanity, it is historic and powerful. Christ's life, death, and resurrection happened in real space and time. And that event of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, according to our Bibles, is the source of God's power to people of salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith. For it is by faith the righteous shall live. The righteous shall live by faith. The gospel solves our terrible unrighteousness problem by making us right in the eyes of God. It is extraordinary. At the end 
of the sermon, I circled back to Romans 3.21 because Paul circles back to the gospel. And, and I introduced three words to you. Do you remember those three words if you're here? The first one was propitiation in 3.25. It comes from the, the realm of animal sacrifice, and animal sacrificed, its blood would shed, and it would satisfy God's wrath. Back in the Old Testament, it was only temporary. But Jesus is our propitiation now, and his blood shed for us satisfies all of God's wrath that was hanging over us for our unrighteousness. Then there's the other word, redemption. It's the language of the slave market. And Jesus ransomed his life to deliver you out of slavery to sin. And then we came across that word justification, which is in the domain of the law court. It's legal ease. By believing in Jesus and his finished work, God declares an unrighteous, unrighteous sinner righteous in his sight. You go from being out of favor with God and wrong standing with God Two, by this declaration of God, you are in right standing with God. So this morning, I'm going to devote the whole sermon to the doctrine of justification. And here's how we're going to do it. Doctrine defined, doctrine supported, doctrine applied. The doctrine of justification explained, that's why we have this in front of us. Doctrine supported, we're going to do a tour de force of Romans 4 and 5. And then doctrine applied. There are a number of ways that the doctrine of justification will bring health to your soul, Christian. And if you're a non-Christian, this is one of the best things you're going to hear in your whole life. If you're a Christian, God has changed his mind towards you once for all. You were once under wrath, but now you are under his grace because he changed you. So let's look at this doctrine defined. Now I know some of you in the room, I hear the word doctrine, and you're like, honey, wake me up in about 30 minutes. When you hear the word doctrine, you think academy. You think sleep time. You, you think boredom. You think of the Peanuts cartoon where Charlie Brown's sitting and his teacher's going, wah, 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 wah. When you begin to the New Testament, especially in the pastorals, the first, second Timothy, Titus, whenever that word doctrine shows up, there's usually an adjective in front of it, translated healthy, sound. Doctrine simply means teaching what the Bible teaches about something. And biblical doctrine, Bible teaching is healthy for the Christian. It brings soundness to the Christian. And so when we talk about the doctrine of justification, oh, it will bring health to your soul. In this little book, Concise Theology by J.I. Packer, this is an introduction to Christian doctrine. And in about halfway through the book, he talks about justification and he defines it. Let me define it for you, according to J.I. Packer. Justification is a judicial act of God, pardoning sinners, accepting them as just, and so putting permanently right their previously estranged relationship with Him. This justifying sentence or declaration 
is God's gift of righteousness, his bestowal of a status of acceptance for Jesus' sake. When God justifies an unrighteous sinner, God changes that unrighteous sinner's legal standing before him. It's a legal change of status. And he changes his mind about us. Now, right out of the gate, I want to help you understand how God did that. The inner workings of how the God of the universe can change his mind about an unrighteous sinner. Would you turn in your Bibles, if you have a pew Bible, it would be to page 1143. It's, it's in the book of 2 Corinthians 5.24. And Paul's been talking about reconciliation. We're going to come back to that later in the sermon. But in 5.21, he says this. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So right out of the gate, I want to help you understand what theologians call double imputation or the great exchange. So in light of 2 Corinthians 5.21 in our conversation about justification, God, God making just right an unrighteous sinner, there are two things I want you to see. Here, here you are. And before you believed in Jesus, you were justly under God's wrath. And so all of God's wrath was, was storing up over you and would have poured out on you for eternity. Now, the reason for that is, dun, 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 dun. Can you read this? This is a binder of your unrighteousness. A list of offenses in great detail about your life, your thought life, your actions, sins of commissions, sins of omissions, all right here. And this was the data God needed to pour out his wrath on you, justly. Now, over here, we have Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, totally God, totally man, lived on this planet. And his binder is of perfect righteousness, Christ's righteousness. Every day of his life, 24-7, 365, he pleased God. He did what none of us can do just in a single day. He did it his whole life. So here you have it. Jesus Christ, Christ's righteousness, you under God's wrath because of your unrighteousness. By the way, Jesus was beloved by the Father, accepted fully. So here is what the doctrine of double imputation is. When a sinner like you and me believes, God now responds to that faith by thinking differently. He now thinks of your righteousness being placed on Jesus. And that wrath that was over you, he pours out on full, poured out on full on Jesus Christ on Good Friday for you, on all of your sin. So much so, all of God's wrath for all of your sin was poured out in full, so there's no more wrath. He satisfied it, propitiated your wrath. That's the first part of double imputation, and it gets better. Because God, in that single 
response, this, his justifying grace and mercy, not only considered your unrighteousness placed on Christ and all of his wrath poured out on it, he now thinks of Christ's righteousness as being imputed to you legally. A new legal status for the Christian. And instead of God's fury being poured out, oh, there's nothing but favor and mercy and grace, beloved child that you are. Do you hear what's going on here? Now the question is, when did that happen? The moment you believed that Jesus died for you for the very first time. That moment, God changed his mind about you. Because he justified you on the basis of imputing your unrighteousness to Christ and Christ's righteousness to you. Can anybody give me an amen? amen. Let, me, let, me, let me drill down on this a little bit more. So when we talk about the doctrine of justification, we're talking about a, a change of legal status. There's five things you need to know about the doctrine of justification. It is a legal declaration. It's, it's not necessarily experiential. God changes your legal status. We've got a couple, James and Joel. They're going to be married this Saturday. I think they're over there. Give me hoorah! They're going to have a legal marital status change. Done. When God justifies an unrighteous sinner, they have a change of legal status before God. Now, that legal declaration is a declaration of God alone. An unrighteous sinner has nothing to contribute to it. The, the, if you want to say we can contribute to it, it would be just simply our, our, our faith of receiving God's grace. It's not a work, it's a response. And even that originates from God's work in you. So justification is a legal declaration. It is God alone. We, we don't play a role in that other than receive the gift. It's immediate. Instantaneous. The moment you believe, you are justified in God's sight. And it's complete. When, when you believe for the first time and God justifies you, it's not like God's like, Hey, I'm going to put 10% of your justification down and you know, follow up 90% with the rest when you're dead. No, no. It's all of Christ's righteousness imputed to you the moment you believe. It's complete. It's full. That's why the fifth one is it's unchanging. You can have the worst day of your life, Christian, but you're still completely justified in God's sight. Isn't that good news? It's a legal declaration. It's by God alone. It's immediate. It's complete. It's unchanging. And you know what? We can walk away by saying, you're as justified follower of Jesus as the apostle Paul is justified because you both share the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not going to change. You can't earn this. You can't, you can't work Put this on layaway and work to it. It's only received as a gift. That's why Romans 3.24 says that we're justified by His grace as a gift. So the one 
time and forever legal judgment of God in which he justly declares an unrighteous sinner to be righteous in his sight on the basis of Jesus Christ's finished work. That's what justification is. You can do it shorthand. You can say God's declaration of an unrighteous sinner righteous in his sight. It's legal. And so once you've been justified, you're totally forgiven, totally totally accepted. The great exchange has taken place. It doesn't get revoked. It's yours forever. What has God done to change his mind about you? He's changed you. You see? That's doctrine defined. Let's look at doctrine supported. Now you may be sitting in your seat and you're Salvati, this is just too good to be true. I did... Are you sure Paul didn't make that up? How do you know that's true? When Paul and Silas were on their second missionary journey in Acts 17, they showed up in this town called Berea, shared the gospel, and the Bereans, they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So for us, when we hear something as amazing as this doctrine of justification, it is good and right for us to say, is this biblical? And for what we see in Romans 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul lays out four lines of support for the doctrine of justification, for a righteousness that's by faith. You ready? Two or de force. We're going to blaze through it. first line of support we read in Romans chapter 4, 1 through 12. Precedent. Old Testament precedent. He's laying out a case. In chapter, in Romans 4, 1 through 12, the Apostle Paul starts by talking about Abraham and how Abraham was justified not by his works, but by his faith. So in verses 1 through uh, 5, 1 through 4, Paul points to Abraham and says, Abraham was justified, made righteous by faith in God's grace. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then in verse 6, verse 5 and 6, 7 and 8, he moves from Abraham then talking about David. And he quotes Psalm 32, 1 and 2, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so, right out of the gate, Paul is supporting this righteousness by faith, this alien righteousness imputed to sinners, the righteousness of Christ, by pointing to Genesis 15 and by Psalm 32. And he's already showed his cards. Because back in Romans 1, 16 and 17, this righteousness from God, this is how it's always been, Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. So I hope you see what Paul's doing here. He's, he's setting the precedent. Now, there is a word that gets repeated in this section. It's the word count. In verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted. Verse 4, his wages are not counted 
as a gift, but as his due. Verse 5, his faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 6, of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the work. Uh, Verse 8, the Lord will not count his sin. Verse 9, that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Verse 11, righteousness would be counted to them as well. And if you go all the way down to verses 22, 23, you've got three more counted. What's all this counting? This is Paul talking about God's thinking. God's change of mind. God's reckoning a righteousness not your own to you. He's he's again and again saying it. That's what happened to Abraham. That's what happened to David. That's what Habakkuk was talking about. And when you get into Hebrews 11 and the Hall of Fame, all, all those men and women of faith made righteous in God's sight by faith in God's grace. In fact, in verses 9 and 12, Abraham was justified, Paul makes this point clear, before he was circumcised. By faith, not by works. Here's the point. Justification by faith, not works, is what the Bible has always taught. So here's what that means. Maybe you grew up in the church and you're like, oh, yeah, the Old Testament. The Old Testament teaches a salvation by, by works of the law. And the New Testament teaches a salvation by faith in God's grace. You're mistaken. It's always been God's grace receiving righteousness by faith. That's the point Paul's making here in Romans 4. Isn't that good news? Now, you may be asking, hold on a second. So, all right, um, okay, all right. I'm justified by trusting in the past finished work of Jesus. Okay, how about, like, how is Abraham justified if Jesus hadn't died yet? How's David justified if Jesus hasn't died yet? God justified Abraham, David, and these Old Testament saints based on their faith in the future finished work of Jesus. It's always been by faith. Line one, Old Testament precedent. Line two, why justification is the real deal. We see this in chapter four, verses 13 through 25 in in Romans. And it has to do with this word promise. If you look through this part, you will see the word promise showing up a number of times. In verse 13, we see the word promise. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would bear, be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, and the promise is void. Verse 16, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. You scroll down to verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in the faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced, verse 21, that God was able to do what he had promised. But you know what? There's more. Because in verse 17, the word promise isn't used, but there's an actual promise. As it is written, I have made you, Abraham, the father of many nations. Promise. 
That's Genesis 17.5. And then at the end of verse 18, God says, so shall your offspring be. Genesis 15.5. Promise! What's this promise? It's God's promise to Abraham that through one of his offspring, he will bless all the nations of the world, that Abraham will be the father of many nations, not just Israel, the circumcised folk, but everybody. He will make him the father of many nations. His heirs will number as the stars of the heavens. That promise. And the point Paul is making here is that God's plan for the very fullness of time from the very beginning was to save, to bless people from all nations through Jesus Christ. Paul in Galatians 3 makes the case grammatically that Jesus Christ is the offspring of Abraham through whom God will bless the nations. So what does this have to do with justification by faith? This promise rests on grace received by faith, not the law. So that you can have people coming into the kingdom who aren't Jews, but Gentiles too. The heirs of this promise are made righteous by God's grace received by faith. This promise to bless the nations to Abraham was a promise of grace to all people through Jesus Christ. God's promised plan is a plan of grace in which he would change his mind towards unrighteous sinners by changing them by his grace. So when we sing, Father Abraham had many sons, And many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Do you know how you can be a son or daughter of Abraham? It's not by being circumcised. It's not by obedience to Jewish dietary laws. It comes through a righteousness by faith based on grace. It's the promise. Do I have an amen? Come on. I've been so thrilled all week long. Man, you should think, I'm like lying on my back. Can't wait to preach this. All right. Third line of support. I'm going to have to speed this up a little bit. This next section is chapter 5, 1 through 11. Tour de force. And in this section, we go from talking about promise to talking about a very important word in your Bible. Let me see if I can emphasize it by reading it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. Shalom. And the peace that's being talked about is the satisfaction of all of God's wrath for your sin in the propitiating work of Jesus and you being made righteous in His sight by being imputed the righteousness of Christ. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the peace. So now you turn to the end of this section and you're like, okay, okay, where's the peace? Verse 10, Salvati, where's the peace? Hmm, mm-mm, mm, no peace. Verse 11, mm-mm, 
No peace. There's a different word. Reconciled. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, made peace with, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Peace. This passage is about peace. This is what the justifying grace of God does for sinners. It results in peace, real peace, not fake peace, real peace. It is the only means given by God in which a sinner can be at peace with God. Paul is arguing here, there's no other peace with God outside of this justification by grace through faith. God has changed his mind by changing you. Now there's something you just got to see. Just got to see it. In the middle of this passage about peace, something, up, something else comes up. What would compel a just and holy God to go to such lengths to send His one and only Son to live a perfect life, to die in the place of sinners, to be raised from the dead, reigning on high, and offer salvation to the nations? What would compel God to go to such extreme lengths for sinners? Check out verse 6, chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by, from, from the wrath, by Him from the wrath of God. You see, what drove our just and holy God to go to such lengths to make you righteous in His sight was His love for you. He wanted to be reconciled with you. He needed to make peace with you. He knew you couldn't make peace with Him. Your unrighteous deeds stood against you. So, He made a way through Jesus, the peacemaker. All throughout this passage, you have Christ died for the unchrist godly. Christ died for us, justified by His blood. We were enemies, uh, reconciled to God by the death of His Son. The death of Jesus is God's love for sinners to make peace with us, to justify us. It's beautiful. So by believing in the gospel, a sinner is not just justified in God's sight, he is, she is reconciled to God, and there is peace between the sinner and God. And what drove that is love. Perfect love casts out fear. What a God. What peace. Okay, the fourth line of support is in 512 through 21. We've looked at precedent. We've looked at promise. We've looked at peace. And now the fourth P word, proxy. In chapter 5, 12 through 21, one of the other results of God's grace in our life is that we've got a new proxy. 
In 12 through 21, Paul contrasts two men, Adam and Jesus Christ. And think of these two men as the proxies for all mankind. You're you're either represented by Adam or you're represented by Jesus. All human beings are either in Adam or in Jesus, and by proxy as a representative head. And throughout this passage, Paul lumps all people as either being in Adam or being in Christ Jesus. Notice, he doesn't lump all people as either Jew or Gentile. What he's talking about is how God sees all people. As either being in Adam or being in Jesus. And if you're in Adam, you're experiencing a life marked by sin, death, judgment, condemnation, the reign of sin. But if you're in Christ Jesus, your life is marked by ongoing righteousness. It's, it's life, not death. Grace is a free gift. You're made righteous legally. And now you're under the reign of grace. Who's your proxy? How does God change his mind about you? He gives you a new proxy. Jesus. His justifying grace moves you from Adam to Jesus. You know, I know not everybody is a, um, what's his name? I forget his name. Harry Potter fan. I've read the books. seen some of the movies. I know it's about wizards going to wizard school. Apparently, when first-year wizards go to the wizard school of Hogwarts, they're eating in this big banquet hall, and there's this talking hat that goes on their head, and the talking hat decides which house for them to go to. And there are four houses in Hogwarts, but there's really two that matter most. Slytherin and Gryffindorf. And this hat decides which house you're in. God's word here, we're learning that God sees all humanity in one of two houses. House of Adam, sin reigning to death. Or the house of Jesus, grace reigning in life. And the way you move from one house to the other is not by working your way there. It's by trusting in Jesus' finished work there. And so God now declares a sinner righteous in his sight in the house of Jesus solely based on that sinner's trusting in God's promise. Isn't that amazing? Christian, you're in the house of Jesus now. Non-Christian, it's time to go from the house of Adam to the house of Jesus. All right, let's do doctrine applied. We've defined justification, God declaring an unrighteous sinner righteous in his sight on the based on the finished work of Jesus. We've looked at the support. There is biblical precedent. There is the promise to Abraham. There is this peace. And now Jesus is our proxy. Doctrine applied. I actually have five B's, 
but I'm getting hot up here. Is anybody hot out there? I'm about to wilt. But man, I'll name the bees, and I'm going to pick just two to hit. Doctrine applied for Christians. The doctrine of justification is your belay. One. The doctrine of justification is your ballast. Two. The doctrine of justification is your boldness. Three. The doctrine of justification is your battle cry. Four. And the doctrine of justification is your boast. Five. Let's talk belay, ballast, battle cry. When I was a youth pastor, I'd bring youth uh, all around Wisconsin, and we would do a lot of rock climbing. It was great for young people to get stretched. Team building is wonderful. But what would happen is a, a student would wear a girdle, and there's this rope that goes down. They would click in with a carabiner, and that rope would go all the way to the top of the cliff that's anchored up there, and then would come down, and behind them was a person called a belayer, and that belayer was actually kind of anchoring the rope. And, and so this, this climber's health and well-being actually depended on the belayer. And so when a student was about to climb, they would look back at the belayer and they would say, belay on, question mark? And the belayer would say back, belay on. I got you. The doctrine of justification is like this inseparable rope between you and Jesus. In which you, every morning, can you imagine, you are turning to the God of the universe and you're like, belay on, am I justified? And then the God of the universe says, belay on, baby! If God is for you, who can be against you? The thing is, if you're a I believed in Jesus. The belay is on whether you think it's on or not. He's got you, regardless of how you feel. You're justified. It is a legal declaration. If, if you were American living in Iran, chances are you're not going to be feeling too American. But you are a U.S. citizen. You, if you're justified, you are justified and belayed in regardless of how you feel. Ballast. Anybody know the song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald? That would have been awesome if that was actually The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Well, on Lake Michigan, you can get some crazy seas, crazy lake waves, and obviously on the Atlantic Pacific too. And um, back in the day, I think they still do this, they would put ballast at the very bottom, the hull of a boat. And ballast would be rocks, metal, things like that. And so what happens is the center of gravity for a boat, it actually then resides underneath the water line. Do you know what that does? It keeps a boat from being overturned. It can get hit by a rogue wave, and it doesn't overturn. 
The doctrine of justification is ballast for a Christian soul. Because if you're like me, usually a few times a week, maybe a few times a day, you get accused. You get a fiery dart shot at, shot at you, trying to make you think that you should be afraid of God. I did some things in high school that I have such deep regrets over. And to this day, I know, I'm 51, I look like I'm 23. But to this day, to this day, those things can haunt me. And do you know what I have to say to them? I'm like, I'm belayed in. And Jesus is my ballast. You can throw anything at me. But everything that I've done has been paid in full by Jesus. Doesn't stick. I'm going to keep chugging by God's grace. The doctrine of justification is your ballast. We, we need to help each other there. Remind each other the ballast in, in us through Christ. Boldness, hey, confess your sins. You've got nothing to be ashamed of. Battle cry, the doctrine of justification, you know what it does? <laughs> It makes you come out swinging. Instead of letting your sin rule over you like you're still under your old proxy, Adam, you've been shifted to a new house. You're not under sin anymore. The reign of sin has been destroyed. That dominion has been crushed by Jesus. And now we are under the reign of grace. And so when I think of being justified and I belay in in the morning, and when you think about that too, you, that is your battle cry to fight the sin that remains within. Because the reality is that you're simultaneously justified and sinful. This side of glory. Justification. I, when I encounter a brother who's struggling with pornography, do you know what I set out to do? to convince him of his justification. That's what I set out to do. And that's what Paul does. In Romans 3, 4, and 5, justification's laid out. And then Romans 6, he starts going after sanctification. And that's where we're going to go for the next two weeks. I needed to help you understand what justification is so that now we can pursue sanctification Justification is the one-time act of God in which we're made legally righteous in His sight. Sanctification is the day-in, day-out street fight of living out that righteousness. Come for the next two weeks. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6. All right. Doctrine defined, doctrine supported, doctrine applied Somewhat. Christian, on the basis of Christ's finished work, God has changed his mind towards you because he changed you. Belay on. Belay on. You're justified. The doctrine of justification is health to your soul. Non-Christian, if you still fear God, has yet to change his mind about you, that you're still without excuse, you're still under his wrath, that you think it's up to you to fix your life. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, to change you, so he could change his mind about you too. 
He offers you full forgiveness and acceptance today. And you too can belay in. If you're a non-Christian, it's time to leave the house of Adam and come into the house of Jesus by faith. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved or you will be justified. Pray, pray with me. God in heaven, um, would you use my little fish and loaves to do big work in people's lives for the glory of your name. Amen.